Welcome to the Old Galway Diary podcast. Each week, Tom Kenny and I, Ronnie O'Gorman, write a column in the Galway Advertiser. Before it goes to press, we contact each other and share what is filling the page that particular week. This podcast is that conversation. And I would add, we enjoy talking to you and would appreciate if you would give us a rate and review on the Apple Podcast app. Thank you. Yes, Tom, good morning. Tom, good morning. Yes, right. I have good news for you, Tom, that the Christmas fair in Air Square is just been assembled lightning speed. And I'm very glad. I didn't think they were going to have it this year with all the lockdowns and all these things. But um, I think it really adds something to the Christmas atmosphere in Galway. And uh, it looks the same as ever. In fact, it looks bigger than ever. And uh, I'm just looking out my window now. I see them all going up. Um, People will be passing my window on the wheel. And I wave to them and they look at me in horror that I could be looking out at them. (laughs) Of course they do. Well, I have good news of a sort too, because when I look out my window, I can see for the first time in a long time, trails being left by planes flying overhead. Yeah, you see, that's good. Yeah. So that is hopeful sign for the future. Very, much, very much so. Yes, I was speaking to Maura Fahey actually yesterday, and she was saying how delighted she was, and she knew so many of her customers were just dying to get over, to see families, to see grandchildren they hadn't seen, you know, and to meet up yeah. again. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Apart from business contacts and things like that. So it's great. Yeah. Things may be getting back to some kind of, some semblance of normality. Hopefully. So, Tom, here we are, another week. What are you writing for us this week, please? Well, it was at this time of year, in uh, 1920, that a young curate, Father Michael Griffin, was lured from his house on Montpellier Terrace by the Black and Tans. Uh, he was an extremely popular young curate. He had been seconded to the parish of Rahun, and uh, he was only here a short time, but he learned Irish. He spoke Irish to all the locals. Uh, he was an organiser. He, he organised fashion and donkey races on Silver Strand, Corrock racing on Silver Strand, a whole lot of things like that. So he was an enormously popular uh, man. But he was, some weeks before his abduction, uh, there was a teacher from Barna called Patrick Joyce who was uh, captured by the IRA, court-martialed. They said he was... Uh, spying, but furthermore, worse than that, worse than spying on them, he was actually reporting names of local Sinn Féiners to the British authorities. And so the IRA executed him and he was buried in a bog in Barna. Now, the word went out afterwards that uh, this man, Patrick Joyce, had a priest attend him and give him the last rites and heard his last confession. The Tans believed that this priest was, in fact, Father Michael Griffin. It was not. and It was a priest who was brought deliberately across from Hedford, across the lake. So a man who didn't know Joyce uh, and a man whom Joyce didn't know. Anyway, uh, Father Griffin was suspected of hearing the last confession. And that is probably the reason for his uh, abduction that they were trying to beat 
what he heard in confession out of him and, uh, uh, you know, get him to admit who were the killers of Joyce. Now, this made a very different story out of the whole thing because this was now uh, a crime against a religion. It wasn't just the murdering of a single man or of a priest, but it was a crime against religion. Uh, anyway, the um, Father Griffin was missing for about a week. There were search parties all over the place. And eventually his body was discovered in a buried in a bog at Kluxkulche in uh, Barna. Uh, and it was a pure accident. Uh, it would seem that cows had been grazing in this field, this boggy area, and maybe they sniffed the blood or something and they disturbed uh, part of the surface of the ground and in doing so exposed a little bit of uh, the tail of Father Griffin's coat. Anyway, they found him. Uh, he was taken locally uh, and secretly into St. Joseph's, which was the church he was based in, really. And um, there was a huge, a huge outcry about this because this was the killing of a priest. This was a crime against religion. There was a whole lot of reasons. For it. it became a huge international story. It indeed, it really uh, did. Yeah. 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 And the, uh, you know, uh, it was raised in the House of Parliament, actually. Many, many, several times, in fact. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was a very major. You know, yeah, yeah, they they backtracked all the time. Yeah, and and actually, there's an interesting. Um, <clears throat> I was speaking at one of the commemorations at the monument some years ago, and I, it was suggested to me that I should call Pat Dolan, who is now a professor in UCG. He came to Galway in the 80s. He, he was new to Galway. He was working in St. Anne's in, uh, on Taylor's Hill. And it was about this time of year. It was a dreadful night. He was leaving at about 7.30, 8 o'clock. It pours of rain. He got on his bicycle and he was going out to the drive. And there was a very elderly man coming towards him who had no coat, no hat, no umbrella, no protection against the rain. And Pat stopped and he, are you all right? Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So it turned out that this man was from Derby and he had to come back to this location. And it eventually emerged. And what he actually said to Pat was, we accidentally killed a person over there. And he pointed to the spot. Now, Pat being very new to Galway at the time, this didn't mean much to him unfortunately uh anyway he he left and the man obviously left as well but he was obviously one of the tans and his conscience drove him back all those yes. years later yeah, yeah, yeah. anyway what i'm really writing about is how galway have remembered father griffin and yes. how they have commemorated yeah, him and, yes you know re his like first of all they built um a major monument on yeah. the site where he was found, where his body was found in Kluxkoitsche. Yeah. And it's a source, it's a kind of a shrine. Uh, th there are regular meetings of <clears throat> political parties and commemorations there, but much more importantly, there are regular people who visit it quite regularly and pay their homage and respects to Father Griffin there. In that 1937, they opened a new road in uh, linking Salt Hill with <clears throat> uh, 
the Wolftone Bridge, and they called this Father Griffin Road. And there is a lovely plaque at the end of Father Griffin Road on the Salt Hill end. Now, yes. I would say very few Galway people know it's there even. They pass it by every day, maybe. It's a lovely old Irish script, Tom. It's very... Exactly. That's precisely script. the point. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It yes. was carved by Martin Fahey from Woodkey, from Fahey. Yes. Beautifully done. Woodkey. Yeah. And it is. It's superbly done. And it's... It's not just a monument to Father Griffin, it's a monument to good stone carvers as well. Yes, uh, you know, they named then a, a football team, a local football team after Father Griffin, uh, which is still in existence. That was named in 1948. And then in 1970, on the 50th anniversary of his murder, uh, Father Griffin's, they held a major uh, event. Um, it began with a mass in the cathedral, which was celebrated by the then bishop, Michael Brown. And then there was a parade from the cathedral to uh, Montpellier Terrace, the house in which Father Griffin lived and from where he was abducted. Uh, this parade was led by St. Patrick's School Band, and it included relatives of Father Griffin. Uh, the mayor, Michael Smith, was there. A lot of members of the corporation, the sword and mace. I mean, the, the, the full regalia were there uh, from the city. The members of Father Griffin's club, there was representatives of the old IRA and the general public. And the plaque was unveiled by Pat Fanning, who was the then president of the GAA. And he was accompanied by Sean O'Sheehan, who was, of course, the secretary. And the first photograph I have is of a section of the crowd who attended the unveiling. And there are actually six mayors of Galway in this. Mary Byrne, well, five of them ex-mayors at that time. Yeah. Mary Byrne, oh. Paddy O'Flaherty, Jerry <clears throat> Colgan, Fintan Coogan Sr. and Paddy Ryan. And of course, as I say, Michael Smith. There are members of the club. <clears throat> there are three All-Ireland winning footballers of representing Galway. Uh, Liam Salmon, Martin Newell and Coley McDonough. Uh, and also there, interestingly, is Sean Turk. Now, Sean was the then president of Father Griffin's club, but he knew Father Griffin. And I have a photograph of him standing guard beside uh, Father Griffin's coffin. And, uh, you know, he, he, he was a very major figure in the War of Independence in Galway, Sean Turk. And there were two others there who were founder members of um, Father Griffin's Club. One was Paddy O'Brien from St. Bridget's Terrace, and the other was Sonny Malloy uh, from High Street, well, Woodkey and High Street. Uh, both of these were footballers in their day. They had played for the monastery, school, and later for Father Griffin's. And indeed, one, one game that Sonny played in, he scored five goals. <laughs> and the local paper reported this with the headline Five Gold Malloy. <laughs> yes, I can't begin to tell you how many times yeah. we had to listen to That's Five Sonny would have loved that, yeah. Telling us about his exploits. Yeah. Anyway, it's a very interesting photograph. It's of its time, yeah, it's 50, 50 yeah. years ago. And the other that. picture I have used is of the monument in Cluxquilcha. And again, like yeah. the one in Father Griffin Road. This has beautiful Irish 
script, Irish Great language deep. script in it as well. So, Tom, that's great. Maybe 101 years ago, but he is very well remembered and very well remembered. Oh. Yes, I know. Now he's uh, the the black and tans. Then they he got a great funeral. My granny uh, remembered it all quite well, actually, and she didn't often talk about events at that time, but she did certainly talk about the murder of poor Father Griffin. But she said that. Um, you know, the, the town was alarmed. First of all, they were alarmed that he was missing all that time. It was yeah. feared that he was taken out and murdered. His body was found, as you say, there at the back of Barna, brought into St. Joseph's Church on a donkey cart and, of yeah. course, laid to rest properly in front of the altar of the church. But a woman, my granny says, a woman saw the corpse and in total hysteria, ran down Presentation Road shouting, they've killed Father Griffin, they've killed Father Griffin. And everybody came to the doors of their house. And she said it was as if the whole town, you know, was suddenly aware of and deeply moved and distressed at the murder of a priest. The murder of a priest had a massive impact on the people. It really had. And he got a huge funeral, as you know yourself. And the black... 12,000 people. How many? 12,000 people, they reckon, turned up. And furthermore, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but... No, you're not. No, do. The the remains were taken to Lockray, where they're buried, with another big monument. But Anne O'Malia from High Street... Yes. ...told me that... Her parents, as young school children, were brought with all of the school kids from Lockray out about a mile out from Lockray on the Galway Road. And they lined both sides of the road waiting for this funeral to come into Lockray. Right, right. But in fact, the black and tans came and scattered them all and sent them all home. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't just in the city that the funeral had a major impact. Yes. In fact, of course, it had a worldwide impact, really, yes. uh, because of the murder of a priest. Yes. Yes, I know. No, it really did. And uh, he's buried, as you say, in St. Brendan's Church there, right, right before, right in front of the church, actually, in a very yes. significant grave. Uh, yes. But I was just going to say that the hypocrisy of the Black and Tans, because they, when the funeral was going through Galway and was brought through in a slow, slow march down the town to Fairgreen, and then it took off at a reasonable speed. <coughs> But the black and tans lined the road to keep the crowd in order. You know, the yeah. hypocrisy of it, my granny used to say. The That's hypocrisy right. of yeah. those men, she said, who had killed yeah. him. And there they were, giving him a sort of a, a, a you know, a, 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 a standing to attention as the cortege passed. But anyway, yeah, it was a very big story. Very it big was story. indeed, yeah. yeah. Well, this is a photograph from 1970. Yeah. And you will find a lot of Galwegians in it. That's excellent, Tom. That really is yeah. excellent. Well, funnily enough, now I'm also dealing with a, an altercation as well, uh, rather unusually, actually. I, I'm going into the French Revolution, Tom. So you'll have to bear with me now because um, in, in July 14, 1789, a date I'm sure you remember yourself because July mm-hmm. 14th is celebrated as a great national holiday in France, yeah. uh, is unleashed fury and frustration by the mob besieging the Bastille prison. The Bastille was a a medieval armory and a fortress and a political prisoner prison right in the center of Paris. And in a short, terribly bloody battle, 
98 of the mob were killed and officers of the guard were killed. And the poor um, governor of the prison um, was taken out and uh, murdered, stabbed to death, and his head was taken off, as was the local mayor who went in pleading for peace and quietness. uh, And he also was stabbed to death and his head was uh, cut off and stuck on pikes and carried through the city. So this was the flashpoint of the French Revolution. And uh, there are witnesses to that. An English traveller, I found out, Dr. Edward Rigby reported that he saw and he wrote two bloody heads raised on pikes, which were said to be the pikes of the Marquis de Loney and the Monsieur Flassel, the mayor. It was a chilling and horrid sight, and it shocked and disgusted me and my family, and we retired immediately from the streets. Now, (laughs) I'm saying this this story uh, of a well-known incident, because also in Paris at the time was my friend Colonel Richard Martin, his wife, Eliza, and their three children from Galway. Martin, as I've said before, was a highly enlightened man of his time, because instead of going on the grand tour of Europe, which became a kind of a rite of passage for aristocratic young men in the 18th century, Martin chose to go to the New England states in America, and there he witnessed the start of the American War of Independence. Now, the American War of Independence was... The, the old cry was no taxation without representation. It had kind of a that angle to it. Yeah. Whereas the French Revolution was really anti-elitism. Uh, it was anti-stringent taxes that were imposed on the people. It came at a time of a similarly in Ireland of bad harvests, uh, poor economic policies by the poor king and queen. Uh, And all of these things just drove the people out of their minds with frustration, starvation and anger. And uh, the king and queen, the king called a kind of a meeting of all the estates in France and said, now you must help me. The country is bankrupt. We need to impose more taxes. And of course, that meeting all collapsed and the National Assembly, a meeting of the people emerged. And that became eventually the new government for a while. And a lot, a lot was to happen and uh, a terrible period of terror and mass executions until eventually Napoleon emerged and uh, one of the greatest commanders, of course, in history. And he guided that ferocious appetite for radical change into astonishing victories on the battlefield. But that's all that was to come. Martin was there and uh, uh, witnessed this incredible event which happened to, you must have been the, you know, people would have talked about nothing else. But surprisingly, uh, things calmed down. Um, the, the rabble were satisfied that they had achieved what they set out to achieve. They had made their point. They saw the Bastille as a kind of a, a part of the, the, the rule of the king. So that was destroyed. It was actually taken apart and um, burnt. What was ever could be burnt was burnt. And what could be carried away stone was carried away stone and um martin saw all of this and he he, he was a very popular man in paris a very gregarious man as we've seen uh his beautiful wife of course eliza and his children and they were very well looked after and fated and he went to various receptions and once the crisis had died down you know 
Paris social life reopened again and the theatres opened again. And Martin again carried on talking. But I'm sure the main topic of conversation was the revolt and what else was to come. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, um, Martin then suddenly, the lives of the Martin family were changed dramatically at this point because Martin then was called back to London and uh, uh, there was a, a, a company there that wanted to explore the mines on the Balnehinch estate and the Martins always felt if we could get these marble mines going and quarries you know it'll save us because the, the estate was bankrupt and hope, hopelessly uh, you know mortgaged way beyond what it could ever repay so Martin said he would go back to London but Eliza said, well, she'd like to stay in Paris with the children and to see what's going to happen here and enjoy what's happening. So um, Martin said, OK. And uh, he came to London. He sorted out, got a company that was going to look at the mines on the estate. And just as he was about to return to Paris, he got word that there was an election in Galway. So he had to write again to his wife and saying that, in fact, he was very sorry. But yeah, he had to go to Galway and he would like her to follow. But this time she was very emphatic and she said, look, there's a, a big event planned for the first anniversary of the Bastille, July 14. And uh, it promises to be an extravaganza of parades and performances in the Champ de Mar, uh, at which the poor king and queen were to appear before the National Assembly and give their allegiance to the National Assembly. And this, in fact, could be the end of the French Revolution. But of course, that didn't happen. But this was the hope. And the poor yeah. king and queen did all they were expected to do. So she begged Martin if she could stay on a bit longer. And Martin said, yes, you can. And then when it was over, he sent his uh, valet and very good friend, uh, uh, a man called Casto, who was really <laughs> like a pantomime character. But Casto was sent over to organize the return trip of Eliza and the children to uh, Galway. But this is where the story gets really dramatic, because Casto was surprised to find his mistress in the company of a man called Mr. John Petrie. And uh, Siobhan Lynham describes him as a small, rather ugly Englishman, much her senior, to whom it turned out she'd been introduced to in one of the big receptions by one of the bankers. Casto handed her a letter from her husband, but was surprised to note that instead of reading it with the usual affectionate concern that she always had for her husband, she flung it down on the table half read. So the signs were that something was happening. So... Preparations, anyway, Casto had to go ahead with preparations and um, to bring the family back to Galway. But he was surprised to find that Petri was constantly in the hotel, where he sometimes stayed alone with Mrs. Martin until three or four in the morning, and supper was served to the two of them privately. Now, we know all this from the great court case that followed. So these details, of course, when they did come out in the court case that followed, were read with absolute amazement, horror and delight <laughs> yeah. and enjoyment by the whole of Galway, the whole of Ireland, and indeed by many of their friends in, in, in Paris. But worse was to come, Tom. Mrs. Martin's bedroom was connected by a door to the supper room. And one evening, 
And I dread to tell you this, and I know you won't believe it, but one evening when Castor was clearing away, the connecting door happened to be ajar. By candlelight, he saw his mistress lying on a sofa. He saw Petri kissing her, had one arm around her neck while the other lifted her skirts. I know you'll be horrified to hear that, but this all came out in evidence at the trial. Castor then saw the couple in bed together. So an awful journey came back uh, on the journey back with the coaches. And um, uh, eventually uh, um, uh, Eliza and Petri stayed in the inns in their own rooms. They came back together in their own coach. And when eventually they came to London, uh, it was expected that Mrs. Martin would stay at her aunt's house. Uh, but instead, she stayed with Petri at the Royal Hotel in the Pall Mall. So it all came to a terrible climax when Mrs. Martin's brother, a major Vesey, returned from America. Petri, throwing all caution to the wind, invited both Eliza and uh, Major Vesey to his estate in Essex. And he introduced Mrs. Martin to all his friends. And it was quite obvious that they were deeply and passionately in love with each other. And her brother was furious. And he said she must return immediately to London. She must return to Galway to her husband. But there was no going back at this stage. Petri and Mrs. Martin agreed to elope. And following a complicated escape plan involving several coach changes and elaborate disguise and blackened eyebrows, the couple rode off into the night. Well, sounds like a Mills and Boone novel. Well, it, it was far, far more saucier than that. Colonel Richard <laughs> Martin, when he was told the story, was absolutely incredulous. He could not believe that his wife uh, of 13 years whom he had three children, they had many, many miscarriages, he, whom he was actually quite devoted to, even though he was absent a lot, could not believe that she had gone off with this man, Petri. And surprisingly, Martin, being a, you know, a reputation as a duelist, did not call Petri out. But he was kind of overcome with a sentimentality. And he, he wrote to his... Uh, his friends and her friends, their friends, if you like, and suggested that her, her, her conduct must really be looked upon as a weakness of humanity and uh, suggested her strange conduct was probably caused by a deranged mind. And he asked, asked their friends to show her kindness. And when uh, Eliza's mother refused to accept uh, her, her daughter's clothes and effects, because she was also very angry with their daughter. Uh, poor Martin had them forwarded to Eliza with, I quote, with the greatest of care. So, <laughs> anyway, I, 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 th that story, it, it gets, it gets more interesting. It is a little bit mins and boony, but it's yeah. just such an unusual thing to have happened. There is more to it in my article this week. And next week, I'll have to talk about the, um, the court case. Well, of course, what happened was in those days, a man's wife was his property. And if she succumbed, if she succumbed to the seductions of another man, uh, the husband was within his rights to sue that man for a loss of his property, which Martin proceeds to do with great alacrity and with surprising success. So anyway, that's next week. But this week, as a background to the French Revolution, there was also a revolution in the Martin household. It sure was. 
So anyway, Tom, will we leave? Well, I'm looking forward to that. We'll leave it at there. We'll leave it there. Well, you never okay. know what will appear in the Galway Diary. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> Until right. next week. You betcha. Take care, yeah. Tom. Nice. Yeah, God bless. Always. Take care.